So it's not just about the impact of climate change on what lives in the ocean, it's about the fact that the impacts of climate change are circulating back, it's like a cycle. So if climate change impacts the oceans, the oceans then impact the climate again. Dr Alice Jones is a lecturer in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Adelaide. And her research is focusing on climate change in marine ecosystems. While searching the oceans for signs of environmental degradation, Alice has also encountered some intriguing adaptations to climate change. You're kind of creating a new ecosystem that includes the natural ecosystem and then the infrastructure and the other things that you're adding in there are in complement to the natural ecosystem rather than in detriment to it. Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and today we're joined by an accomplished ocean warrior uncovering innovative ways to reduce carbon emissions while protecting marine ecosystems. Alice takes us through her research, which has the potential to reach from the wilds of our coastlines to the cattle farms of inland Australia. This is the Discovery Pod. Alice, welcome to the Discovery Pod. Thanks for having me, Andy. Look, it's got so many really interesting questions. You are a lecturer in resilience ecology in the School of Biological Sciences. And we we know we know that climate change is causing untold damage to our natural and production systems on land, but also in the sea. So as a, as a kind of marine person, what are our options for supporting kind of adaptation and mitigation strategies in marine ecosystems? Yeah, so climate change is definitely having impacts on marine ecosystems. There's increases in sea surface temperature and in ocean temperature in general, um, impacts on the, on the polar oceans in particular, um, and also ocean acidification because of the amount of carbon dioxide that's being stored in the oceans now. It's causing them to become more more acid. So there's so just a few challenges. Just there. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit of an issue. <laughs> and so the ocean acts as like a huge store of both carbon and heat. For, and it, so it, it sort of moderates to some extent the global climate cycle and the global carbon cycle. So Having it be a little bit out of balance is quite an issue. It affects all of, or it can potentially affect all of the global ocean currents, which then has an, a knock-on effect into the weather and our weather systems. So, so things like El Nino and La Nina are caused by those those ocean, ocean circulation currents, aren't they? Yeah, and changes in in high and low pressure systems, which affect the the amount of heat that's stored in certain parts of the ocean. And so there's interactions between everything that affects us on land and what's happening in the ocean. And I think sometimes that connection is not really appreciated broadly. So it's not just about the impact of climate change on what lives in the ocean. It's about the fact that the impacts of climate change are circulating back. It's like a cycle. So if climate change impacts the oceans, the oceans then impact the climate again. And it's it just keeps on happening. And it's like a feedback loop. And so the oceans really do affect our lived experience, you know, how we experience our lives from day to day, whether that be the weather, whether that be, you know, what food is available to us, whether we can get our favourite tuna from caught off the South Australian coast or whether because of La Nina, the tuna is a little bit further away from the coast and it's not as available anymore. So Mm. there's all of these interactions that the ocean has. But in the same way, the ocean can really help us to adapt and mitigate climate change. So 
a lot of coastal ecosystems can really help us with climate change adaptation. If we have vegetation growing along the coast, particularly things like mangroves, seagrass beds, they can help to reduce wave energy and reduce the impact of extreme events, which are occurring more frequently now because of climate change. And also there's ecosystems along those fringing coastal areas that take up a lot of carbon from the environment. So mm. they are often seen as a nature-based solution to climate change. So we, can, we can't just view the oceans as the great dustbin uh, <laughs> no. that we keep on adding our rubbish into because they, they have an effect. And then that effect will come back to bite us because those systems perform hugely important moderating influences. And as you say, also perform you know important adaptation services such as preventing coastal erosion but most importantly perhaps also uh, form an important sink for carbon which is then a mitigation strategy to help uh, reduce climate change overall mm -hmm. but if we were to look at those kind of marine systems where do you think we should be focusing some of our energies so the buzzword for this climate mitigation activity that happens in coastal ecosystems is blue carbon. Blue carbon. It may be a buzzword, but it's an important one. Blue carbon is what we call carbon that is taken out of the environment and stored in coastal ecosystems, such as mangroves, seagrasses and salt marshes and it's long been identified as an important part of Australia's march towards a net zero future. Australia recognises that nature-based solutions are critical to global efforts on climate change, and blue carbon is a key part of this. Australia set up the International Partnership for Blue Carbon in 2015 with the aim of protecting and serving mangroves, tidal marshes and seagrasses for climate change mitigation and adaptation. Australia is delighted to endorse the joint declaration on the creation of a global coalition for blue carbon. We have one of the longest coastlines on Earth, estimated at more than 34,000 kilometres. There's no such thing as a healthy environment or healthy oceans without action on climate change. And we absolutely can't tackle climate change without taking action on our oceans. And there's an opportunity here in South Australia to be the first world's largest blue carbon project. So our coastal ecosystems can play an important role in our response to climate change. But what exactly do these systems look like? And how are they able to capture and store blue carbon so effectively? The ecosystems that perform this kind of ecosystem service for us that draw carbon out of the environment and store it for long time periods, which means it's not in the atmosphere and it's not contributing to climate change, they are seagrasses, salt marshes and mangroves. So they're three shallow subtitles, so you know, shallow water but completely under the water ecosystems, that's mostly what seagrasses are, and then also intertidal systems, so salt marshes and mangroves, and some seagrasses are also intertidal. So they have their feet wet some of the time, but not all of the time. And those three main types of ecosystems are the blue carbon ecosystems, and they just exist in these fringing areas along the coast. They're very restricted in terms of the areas that they can grow in because they have very specific needs in terms of the amount of light so they can't be in super deep waters because mm. they need light to grow and to photosynthesize that's the seagrasses that are underwater and then on the kind of land side of the coastal zone we've got the mangroves and the salt marshes 
that need a certain amount of tidal inundation, not too much and not too little. So it's kind of like a Goldilocks zone that these ecosystems can exist in. And it's quite narrow, just along that gap between the land and the sea. So they're quite fussy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they also uh, grow in places where people like to build their holiday homes, I guess. Yep. So uh, quite endangered and quite under pressure at the moment. Mm-hmm. But incredibly important, I guess, for contributing to the blue carbon equation. So they're being lost globally at relatively high rates, unfortunately. And the way that they store carbon is that these ecosystems are made up of plants, which photosynthesize. So they draw carbon out of either out of the atmosphere or if they're underwater, out dissolved inorganic carbon out of the water. Hmm. Um, and they use that to make their tissues. So they turn inorganic carbon into organic carbon. And so it's stored in their tissues. So in their leaves, in, in the trunks of mangroves, it's actually in the biomass. But Also, it's stored underneath them in the sediment that they grow in. And that's where most of the carbon in blue carbon ecosystems is stored. In the sediment. In the sediment. Under the seagrass and under the mangroves and the salt marshes. And and those sediments just are continuously burying carbon. So they can accumulate greater amounts of carbon in them than land-based systems. So how, how significant are those kind of blue carbon sequestration sinks compared to land-based ones? The rates at which they can sequester carbon is, it depends what, what you're comparing with what, but for the most part, it's usually two to four times more carbon than per, an equivalent per, per, hectare, per yeah, hectare than an equivalent ecosystem on land. So f- comparing seagrasses with grasslands or comparing mangroves with forests, for example. Okay. Yeah. So pretty significant. Yeah. So we should definitely maintain those and maintain their capacity to sequester carbon. Yes. Okay. Number one. (laughs) So what about, uh, what's the role of seaweed? Does seaweed have a role to play in blue carbon? Yeah. So seaweeds are a little bit different because they tend to grow in rocky environments. So they have holdfasts, which are essentially like their roots, their foot. Yeah. Yeah, Like a sucky sort of foot. And they hold (laughs) onto rocks with those and they don't grow in soft sediments. So Although they are still photosynthetic and they still store carbon in their biomass and in their tissues, they don't have that underground carbon storage capacity that the intertidal and shallow subtidal, so seagrass, mangrove and salt marsh have. So yeah. that's the difference. They don't have that big store of carbon under underneath them. That permanent store yes. that is added to. Yeah, yeah, because the carbon that's stored in blue carbon ecosystems in seagrass and salt marsh and mangrove, that can be retained in the soil for thousands of years. We've collected sediment cores from underneath mangroves and we've dated the sediments at the bottom of about a metre of sediment depth to over 3,000 years old. Wow. So they're storing carbon in the sediments for really long time periods and those kind of time periods are what you need to make a difference with climate change. You need it to be centuries to millennia, not years to decades. Because our big challenge at the moment is to try and soak up as much carbon dioxide as we can out of the environment and while we while out. we decarbonize our yeah. energy uh, production systems and keep it out. Yeah, yeah, and it needs to be kept out for decent am- amounts of time. For a long time. Uh, yeah. Centuries. Amount, yeah, centuries. Yeah, millennia. Yeah. <laughs> we need to be working on that kind of timescale. Yes. Yeah. So seaweed, seaweed is probably not one of the top three blue carbon uh, sources, but why, why is there so much interest around uh, potentially seaweed as a kind of carbon sequestration sink? Yeah, so like I said, when you grow seaweed, when it's growing, it, I mean, is, it grows really quickly. It grows. It? So yeah. yeah, some seaweeds grow extremely quickly. Some of the kelps, in particular, and when it's growing, it is 
doing that, you know, taking up carbon and putting it into its tissues. So it is a carbon sink in terms of it's removing carbon from the environment and storing it in its tissues. But it's ephemeral, isn't it? But it's, yeah, it's not true sequestration because generally the plants will, if it's in a wild environment, like a rocky reef environment, the plants have a, you know, a lifetime. And after they die, their plant materials and tissues float around in the water, get eaten by fish and get broken down by microbes. And all of the carbon that was stored in them gets released back into the environment or goes into the body of a fish. And then when the fish dies, it gets released back into the environment. So it's part of the carbon cycle, but it's not a long-term carbon store. So seaweed's a bit of a, a wonder plant then <laughs> isn't it or wonder algae i guess <laughs> because sure that there, there are options for it to be involved in kind of the more short-term kind of carbon sequestration cycle but i guess you could bury some of that the seaweed out at sea in in long-term storage at the bottom of the ocean could you so yeah that has been proposed as a method for true sequestration so long-term sequestration from seaweed A proportion of the wild seaweeds that grow on our reef, our rocky reefs, you know, around South Australia and other parts, temperate parts of the world, do get broken off. And eventually some of that might end up in the really deep oceans where it will be stored for probably thousands of years. So that is a mechanism for sequestration. And some people have discussed or looked into options for sort of hijacking that process or hacking that process (laughs) and having seaweed farms where we grow the seaweed to sequester carbon because it grows really quickly and takes up carbon really quickly and then purposefully sinking that seaweed that they've grown into the deep ocean where it will be where the carbon will be effectively sequestered Mm. won't come back into circulation in the in the atmosphere for a really long time and that has been proposed as a potential way to do seaweed carbon sequestration. There's a lot of uncertainty around, you know, how much of it actually gets to the bottom of the ocean? How do we get it to the bottom of the ocean? What are the potential impacts on deep sea ecosystems? And if we were to do it at a scale that's big enough to make a difference to climate change, would there be some trade-offs in in terms of affecting the ocean ecosystem in an unexpected way? You'd be taking a bit of a risk. Yeah, I think so. At, At this stage, knowing what we know about it now. But... There are a lot of other ways that seaweeds, particularly farming seaweeds, can help with climate change. For many of us, seaweed is the slimy tendrils that wrap around our ankles in the ocean or tangled messy piles that create bad smells as they dry in the sun on our beaches. So the thought that fast-growing farms of seaweed could mean more to us than simply the nori on our sushi is an exciting idea. Alice has already detailed the long-term role seaweed could play as a carbon sink in our battle against emissions. But what other applications exist for these all-purpose algae above sea level? If we grow seaweed for biofuels and then those biofuels are used in place of fossil-based fuels, it's a renewable source for a start and also there's usually less emissions from those less greenhouse gas emissions from the biofuels than from fossil fuels and their cleaner emissions. Then there's also things like biochar, which can be made from seaweed. So it gets heated to a really, really high temperature and all that's left is a what we call recalcitrant carbon. So that's basically carbon that isn't bioavailable and is not going to be broken down any further. And then that can get added to soils and it can act as an increase of the terrestrial or agricultural soil carbon 
mm. um, storage. So it can be a soil improver. And there's also feeds. So whether we eat seaweed ourselves, which is a good, you know, a good thing to do in moderation, or whether we feed it to animals in replacement of some other foods that might have a higher carbon footprint than growing seaweed has. In addition to that, there's some really specific types of seaweed that can be used as a feed additive for cows, and it reduces their gut methane production. Some of them have been found to reduce it by over 90%. And in terms of emissions of methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas, it's like seven times more potent than carbon dioxide, farting from cows is a really big contributor to atmospheric methane emissions. So mm. if we can reduce that, it's helping towards our mitigation of climate change, even though it's not directly sequestering carbon. We can invest in and discover or find, invent technologies that get us down the path to being carbon neutral by 2030. Seaweed fed beef will soon be appearing on your supermarket shelves. We normally think of cows eating grass, but some South Aussie bovines have been munching on a new seaweed product. What these 10 cows are eating could be the missing link in creating carbon neutral cattle. It's called Asparagopsis armata, and feeding it to livestock can reduce the amount of methane in a cow's gut by up to 98%. Cow eats about 12 to 14 kilos of feed a day. We need to get about 50 grams of seaweed in that mix. The seaweed is dried and ground into a powder that's then mixed into the cattle's daily feed. 26,000 tonnes is needed each year to incorporate it into all Australian feedlots. Really interestingly, you, you talked a bit about the livestock industry, and obviously livestock is responsible for quite a large proportion of terrestrial uh, emissions, particularly around methane, as you say. So what do they do? Why eating uh, seaweed? Why does it uh, reduce uh, methane emissions? Uh, it's got a specific compound in it called bromoform, which is supposed to have, but it has some impact on the fermentation microbes in the gut of the cows. And Obviously, there's a concern or a question in the livestock industry of like, you know, what impact is this having on on the animals? You know, mm. is there any negative impacts on the animals? Is there any negative impacts on the meat quality or Incomplete the milk quality? Incomplete fermentation may not yeah. get all the nutrients out. So yeah. uh, every every uh, action has a reaction, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And I think at the moment there's, you know, there's work being done around optimizing the, it's just an additive. It's not you know, they just change the cow's whole whole <laughs> diet to being seaweed. It's a small additive that they they add to their their normal feed. And yeah, you do have to be careful for humans as well in terms of the volume of seaweed that you eat because it's quite high in iodine, um, which can be quite damaging physiologically if you if you have consumed too much of it. So yeah, there's there's work being done on optimizing that, but I don't think at this stage, although this is not my research area, but I don't think at this stage they've shown any really detrimental impacts of it on the cattle or on the rates of growth or the or the production of meat or dairy or the quality of the dairy products or anything like that. So Look, we, we are uncovering a pretty amazing range of different uses for many of these marine species, whether they be, uh, you know, seagrass or or seaweeds. And, and here in South Australia, we're actually in a centre of a kind of biodiversity hotspot of seaweed. I think there's, there's something like 1,500 species of red seaweed here in South Australia, more than anywhere else on Earth. We're probably not utilising those species or exploring those species. Mm. What else can we use uh, seaweeds for? 
Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think something that people say, you know, bring up a lot in terms of conservation of ecosystems as well. Like people have spoken about this in terms of rainforests, you know, tropical rainforests. There's been discovery of drugs and various other useful things that we can that we can extract from those environments if they're intact and they're functioning. And yet, you know, maybe we're clear cutting them before we actually discover that those things exist. So um, that's the same for marine ecosystems, that there's a lot of potential in terms of pharmaceuticals, in terms of bioactive compounds. You know, we use things like carrageenan and agar in a lot of scientific research products but also a lot of cosmetics in a lot of foods like thickening agents so there's so many different kind of additives and preservatives and and other benefits to seaweeds and we already use those and I mean much of this discovery I guess has been made some of it centuries ago in Asia they've been farming seaweeds for centuries in in parts of Asia and it's one of the major global hubs for seaweed aquaculture and they supply I think that um, seaweed aquaculture now makes up I'm not sure whether it's by weight or by value but it makes up over 50% of global aquaculture production so it's a big industry and there's a lot of uses for seaweeds yeah (laughs) But you're also in, in favour of, you know, we, we could uh, have uh, established new aquaculture businesses on, on the basis of some of these uh, these seaweeds. You're also in favour of maintaining the kind of nature's benefits from natural ecosystems and mm-hmm. making sure we maintain that. Yeah. What, what kind of what kind of benefits do we get from those those intact marine ecosystems apart from carbon? So from kind of healthy functioning coastal ecosystems like our blue carbon ecosystems let's say seagrasses they act as nursery grounds for fish they help to slow down water flow and to buffer against coastal erosion they're really great areas for recreation like you can go and snorkel around them and see loads of cool like invertebrates like crabs and and fish and all sorts of things in them and In terms of mangroves and also seagrasses, they're really good at filtering out pollutants and particulates from the water. So if we have a huge storm on land and there's loads of water running off, you know, our hard surfaces in the cities that we've built next to the oceans, and we have some areas of mangrove and seagrasses offshore, they're really good at actually filtering that water that's running off off the land and catching and preventing some of the, I guess... It might be bits of like terrestrial soils or it might be pollutants that are running that otherwise would end up in the coastal sea. Mm. So really good at uh, filtering that sediment and various other mm-hmm. pollutants that are coming out from, from uh, the river systems. Yep. And their seagrasses, intertidal seagrasses and salt marshes are really important habitats for migratory shorebirds as mm. well. So here in South Australia, we're part of the sort of global flyways from Asia that all the way to Australia, the Australasian flyway. And, um, and we have birds that migrate all the way from Siberia and come to South Australia seasonally and come and use our salt marsh ecosystems and some of the sort of um, intertidal seagrass areas as feeding areas. And that's why, you know, we have places then that are internationally recognised for their conservation status, Ramsar, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, wetland sites and and other international conservation tags. And the International Bird Sanctuary here as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Mm. So we've got to maintain those. Yeah, it's really important. And in terms of restoration, sort of, I don't like to pit the two against each other, but in terms of restoration versus conservation, in in terms of blue carbon ecosystems at least, it takes a really long time to build back up the carbon stores that you have there you know, in a functioning ecosystem. So it's a lot better if you have a choice to preserve an ecosystem rather than, you know, try and restore it after it's been damaged. So whether we're talking about dried seaweed reducing the methane cows produce, seagrasses and salt marshes trapping carbon away for thousands of years, or mangroves reinforcing our coastlines, marine ecosystems are clearly vital to sustaining our natural world. Listening to Alice, it's clear that conservation of these environments should be our number one priority for a whole slew of reasons. But how do we maintain the delicate balance of the benefits we get from farming seaweed and creating carbon sinks while ensuring the safety of these environments for generations to come? It's a balancing act that we've seen play out on land as the churn of agriculture and the food industry leaves lasting impacts on our natural landscapes. And what about restorative aquaculture? I've heard that term. What, what's that? Uh, is that somewhere in between? Is that somewhere in between restoration and aquaculture? Or is it kind of using some of those benefits? What, what is that? So restorative aquaculture, I guess, is a method or a practice of aquaculture where it's a bit more sympathetic to the environment. So it's not a purely extractive industry that the farming that's happening is is happening in concert with the environment. So you're trying to have a system that works as either maybe the aquaculture can provide habitat for some of the species that live in the area, or it's at least not so intensive that it's completely damaging of the marine ecosystems around it, that there's like an, an interaction and a flow of nutrients and a flow of carbon, and that you're kind of creating almost a a new ecosystem that includes the natural ecosystem and then the infrastructure and the other things that you're adding in there are in complement to the natural ecosystem rather than in detriment to it. But it's also, you know, a production system uh, that uh, helps derive revenue and Mm -hmm. and jobs for that system, which helps maintain that system. But it's not just around a single species. It's Mm -hmm. around a diverse ecosystem that also maintains those species and the services from from that system. Yeah, and in the long term... It may not be as intensive, so there's some trade-offs in terms of the amount of food production that you can get and also the amount of revenue, but it's probably more sustainable because it's not as extractive in terms of its damage on the environment and you know the theory is that it will then be more sustainable. You'll be able to do it for longer in the same location without completely denuding the environment. Oyster farming, for example. So some of the oyster farms around South Australia We've seen seagrass recolonizing in areas around the oyster farms because the oyster farms are actually acting to stabilize the sediment, which allows the seagrasses to recover. And so the oyster farm infrastructure is essentially providing a service that allows a natural ecosystem that was no longer able to live in that environment because the sediment, the sand was moving around too much for the seagrass to get established. Mm. It provides stability and allows the seagrass to come in and the seagrass 
is an entire, you know, it's an ecosystem forming plant. So it brings a whole ecosystem in with it. And the aquaculture is done in a low impact way in terms of the way that they harvest. They don't have big sort of harvesting plows or anything like that. They're growing on racks and harvesting by hand. And so that's then allowing for this seagrass recovery. Mm. So is that what you do then? Do you design those systems or do you go in and uh, trial those with experiments? What, what, what do no. you do on a ba- day-to-day um, basis? That sounds with, with quite your exciting. That's a good idea. <laughs> I'm maybe to try that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the agriculturists are doing a pretty good job of it themselves. No, so I mostly work on blue carbon research. So I go out into coastal ecosystems and we're taking sediment cores and we're looking at the quality of the environment and working out how we can maybe predict or enhance the amount of carbon that's stored in different places in these blue carbon ecosystems. And I've also worked with state and federal government on carbon crediting mechanisms for restoring blue carbon ecosystems so that if people make an activity that means that you'd restore a blue carbon ecosystem that you can maybe get credits for that from the federal government. Any success there? Yeah, so we've got an emissions reduction fund method has been, it was brought in at the beginning of this year. So that's like a legislative instrument that allows people to do a specific activity, which is restoring tidal flow. So in areas, for example, where there has been a seawall built, where previously there might have been mangroves, but because the seawall was built, you know, they're not getting their feet wet anymore. Like that, that connection with tide has been removed and they all die. So if you remove the seawall, and the tide goes back into those areas that it would naturally be in, then those ecosystems will recolonize naturally. Yeah. And so and people carbon, can now then, get yeah, carbon yeah, credits yeah, yeah. for that activity yeah. in Australia. So that only came in at the beginning of this year. So there's a few projects around the country that are starting to trial that methodology. Hmm. Um, so that was, yeah, the clean energy regulator ran that process and there was a scientific working group, which I was part of, that was associated with that. And I'm involved in seagrass restoration projects, looking at what the blue carbon benefits of seagrass restoration might be. So that's mostly what I do. But I do also work a bit in the aquaculture space, particularly looking at what the carbon footprint of different aquaculture products is and how we might be able to reduce that. So what actions can we take on the farm or somewhere in the supply chain that means that your piece of seaweed that you're wrapping your sushi up in has a smaller carbon footprint, so it has a less impact on the on the environment. Yeah. More climate smart, that's what we're calling it. <laughs> Uh, I know you've just got a, a couple of grants uh, that have come in, but imagine if you landed a really, really big grant, millions and millions of dollars, and you could work on whatever you wanted. What would you choose to work on that would really make a difference and make history? Oh, my gosh. Well, I think I'm really excited about being involved in a restoration program because most of my academic work has been, you know, either just observing natural ecosystems and seeing what they do and trying to work out how they work, which is great, or quite academic in terms of not really having a real world effect. So doing the restoration project is really exciting. So I would like to do more of that, like see actual on-ground change and benefits. But really, I do really like the 
trying to find ways to reduce our climate impact. So continuing that aqu- the work with aquaculture would be probably where I would go. So yeah. we we do need to produce food. We need to produce a lot of it because there's a lot of us and there's a lot of people who don't have enough food. So there is, a, you know, a responsibility to produce enough food to feed everybody. I mean, we probably do already produce enough food to feed everybody. We're just not dividing it equally amongst the people on the planet. But food production is responsible for somewhere between 25 to 30 percent of our global carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions so finding ways to continue to produce enough food for a growing population but reduce not just the climate change impacts but the environmental impacts in general that that food production has particularly you know i'm a marine person so (laughs) focusing on the marine environment that's probably where i would try and make most difference i think or where i'm most motivated to do more work Sounds like you've uh, been able to uh, find the uh, the marine holy grail, which is uh, <laughs> food security, carbon sequestration, and also species conservation, mm. and being able to combine those together within within functioning systems. Well, wouldn't that be? I great? suppose the the idea is there. Yeah, <laughs> definitely haven't achieved that, but but you will, I'm sure. <laughs> thank you for Alice. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you for a really fascinating uh, discussion and uh, a really interesting navigation, I think, of some of uh, the potential of marine ecosystems and seaweed. Yeah. Yay for seaweed. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Dr. Alice Jones has brilliant contributions to areas that sorely need our attention. With the stresses on our ecosystems continuing to grow, seeding sustainability and conservation with Alice's research captures the minds of industry and policymakers. Alice's research proves that Mother Nature can provide solutions to the problems that plague it. We just need to be prepared to listen. Thank you to Dr. Alice for bringing climate action to the conversation on the Discovery Pod today. And thanks as well to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, rate us five stars. And while you're at it, why not share this episode with friends and family? We'll be bringing you new and fascinating insights from the forefront of research and innovation every fortnight. So hit follow to ensure you never miss an episode. Next time on the Discovery Pod, we're joined by Dr. Stephen Rodder, Chief Innovation and Commercialisation Officer at the University of Adelaide. And together, we'll be putting Australia's approach to innovation under the microscope. In innovation, you are implying that you're making improvements. And so that point of progressing forward, always moving forward, Mm. is certainly right at the heart of innovation and making sure that we are in a position of being able to do things better, faster, cheaper, more efficiently, more sustainable and safer into the future is, is right at the heart of that. We're constantly discussing great ideas on this podcast, and our talk with Stephen really highlights the practical steps to transfer and translate exciting research developments into world-changing realities. In the meantime, if you have a topic that you'd like us to explore, you can email us, podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pod, Brought to you by the University of Adelaide. So, what do you want to know next?